We'll begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much again for our meeting together here under your means of grace at Gospel of Grace. We do thank you for your word. We pray as we look at these doctrines of unconditional election and limited atonement that you would help us think well upon your biblical text. Keep us from error. Help us to know more about you and your magnificent plan of salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, dear ones, we've been going through the TULIP as of late, which is an acrostic acronym where the Calvinists established it back in the 17th century as a rebuttal against the Remonstrants. The Remonstrants were some Dutch uh, formerly Reformed theologians who had an axe to grind with Calvin. They were followers of Jacob Arminius, and they had five points of contention that we laid out last time. So the tulip acrostic that you often see was the Calvinist response to the Remonstrants. So I've already hit total depravity in length, and now we're finishing unconditional election, and we'll move on to limited atonement. So with unconditional election, remember we had shown you that passage in John chapter 1, where we see that salvation is not made by the will of man, but it's purely the will of God. Well, we see the same thing in Romans 9, 15 through 16. To me, this is an exceedingly important text. In fact, at the very end of our series uh, that we're going through on this tulip, I will finish going through Romans 9 with you. And I think that'll be a real eye-opener for a lot of us. But I want to begin, before we put up the passage on Romans 9, 15 through 16, let's read a little context to remind ourselves what Paul's talking about. Remember in Romans 9, 13, I hope you have your Bibles open. If you will, open your Bibles to Romans 9, 13. Now, in my notes, I don't have the full passage quoted, so if I'm somehow misrepresenting it, raise your hand. But I just want to give you a summary statement so you can see the thought pattern that Paul is building off from. Romans 9.13, notice Paul says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So he's quoting that from the Old Testament. So the fact that Jacob was loved means he's of the elect, and Esau being hated means he's not chosen. Okay, now, it doesn't mean Esau is hated in the sense that God just despises everything about him. It means, like you would with your wife, that you love her more than you do other women, if you're a man. Okay, it's that kind of sense, but nonetheless, Esau is not chosen. Now, when Paul starts to wrestle with possible objections to it, notice in verse 14, he says, Is there injustice with God? May it never be. Now, why does Paul ask that question? Because he presupposes that because God chooses one person for salvation and not another, some might suppose that there's injustice with God, that somehow it's not fair. So why is that important? It shows us that if Paul were not saying that God is choosing one person over another, why would he have had to write verse 14 talking about the issue of injustice? In other words, I think it proves that he is talking about the selection and election of Jacob and not Esau. Now, when we, this is important because when we get to verse 15, notice the four. Does, does everyone see my pointer there, the four? That's an explanatory four. Gar, 
in the Greek. I remember when we were learning Greek in seminary, we learned gar, and all of a sudden, like pirates, ar, gar, you know, it's four. And it's an explanatory four. And anytime you see a four, you should ask, what's it there for? This is an explanatory four where Paul is going to be giving us the basis for why God can choose some and not others. So listen to what he says. He's basing it on another passage in the Old Testament which lays out the principle. This is from Exodus thirty-three nineteen. He says, For he says to Moses, this is Yahweh, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So let's stop there. What Paul is saying is God can do what he wants. He can show mercy to some and compassion, but he doesn't have to. He bestows it sovereignly at his good pleasure. Now, to prove that's exactly why Paul is citing Exodus 33:19, notice now in verse 16 in the red, here you have an inferential statement. So then, so Paul is giving you an inference of what he's just said. He said, God gives mercy to those whom he gives mercy, compassion to those whom he gives compassion. What's the inference? The inference, Paul says, is then it does not depend, the salvation, on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Now, why is this passage so particularly devastating against Arminianism? Remember, the Arminian position is not unconditional election, but conditional election. Conditional election is predicated on God looking down the corridors of time, seeing who will choose him, and on that basis, the basis of what a human being did, God selects them. But notice, if that were the case, Paul could have stated that. Hey, Jacob, I loved, Esau I hated. And by the way, the reason I did that is because I saw down the corridors of time that Jacob was going to choose me. Jacob had something going for him, and Esau certainly did not. But that's not what Paul says. He says it doesn't depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. If there is ever a passage in the entire Bible that says salvation is only of God, it's right here. Now, I want you to think of grace and mercy. Grace and mercy, by definition, are unmerited. If you have grace given to you by something because of something you have done, it's no longer unmerited favor. So think of the Arminian position. The Arminian position says this. God looks down the corridors of time. Based on what I do, he chooses to give grace or mercy to me. Is that not a conditional grace, a conditional mercy? And conditional grace and conditional mercy is not the grace and mercy of the Bible. It is unmerited. So this is where I think when we look at the solos of the Reformation, Arminianism is an attack on grace alone. If we don't understand unconditional election, we're attacking the very doctrine of grace alone. Okay, so with that, let's move off of unconditional election and go back to our acrostic. I think we've hit that now. And let's look at the L. Notice I have the L highlighted red. We're going to be looking at limited atonement. Let me give you the definitions of what limited atonement means. 
the Armenians reject this. The Armenian position is that Christ died on the cross to make potential provision for every single person to be saved. So the idea here is that Christ died and whoever will believe obviously is propitiated, but those who don't believe, they're not saved. Now that sounds rather convincing. It seems that's exactly what scripture says. However, realize that what limited atonement is saying is this. Calvinism says that Christ died for the specific purpose of atoning for the elect. Christ's death is sufficient for all, but it is efficient only for the elect. So let's unpack that a little bit. When we look at limited atonement, the Calvinist is not saying that there's only a finite supply of atonement possible. So if I could just make an analogy, there's only 40 pieces of gum and you have 100 students in the class, you just ran out. So if someone wanted to repent and believe, Christ would say to them, ha, sorry, I'm out of atonement. I only had 40 pieces, and you're the 41th who came to me. That's not the the doctrine of the Calvinist. It is sufficient for all. The point that the Calvinist is making is that when God sent his son to die as a propitiation for sins, he did not fail. When Jesus Christ died to forgive sins and to atone for his people, his atonement was not thwarted by the will of man. That's really the issue. To me, the issue is do we serve an omnipotent God who can do exactly what he has set out to do, and when he sends his son to die for the elect, that it will necessarily cause the purpose for which he was sent, that yes, he will bring salvation to his people. So with that, then, I like to call limited atonement definite atonement. It's not limited in the sense that there's only so much of it, but we should think of it as definite in that when God sent his son, it was for the definite purpose of saving a particular people. That's the point. Okay, so think about the Arminians. The Arminians have to have a limited atonement as well. They're simply limiting the atonement by the choice of man. After all, think about it, brothers and sisters. If the atonement were universal, if God atoned for every single human being's sins, well, then there would be no wrath because all would have their sins forgiven. So at some point, you have to limit it. Is it limited because God's plan was thwarted, as the Armenians would have to maintain by human free will? Or is it because, as the Calvinists suggest, I think quite rightly, God didn't send his son to die for every single human being, but it was for the elect? And I think it's the latter. Now, let me start building this case for you And I've got a lot of passages to cover, but what I want to do is I want to show you that there's a lot of inferences and just outright statements in both the Old and the New Testament where Jesus Christ's death on the cross is designed to save the people, the sheep, the elect. We see this, for example, in John chapter 10. We'll start here in verse 11 where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So remember... 
back in the Old Testament, God would rebuke Israel because they had what? Wicked shepherds. Shepherds in Jeremiah and Ezekiel that God called on the carpet because they didn't bring healing balm to the people, but rather brought them to the false gods of the cultures and had the people pillaged. But here Jesus, the good shepherd, comes on the scene. And what does he do? He lays his life down. Now, notice here the preposition for. In Greek, that's huper. And I love that preposition because you could render it on behalf of. That's the idea of substitution. So here Jesus is laying his life down as a substitute for whom? The sheep. Notice the definite article. It's the sheep. He's not laying his life down for every single human being without exception, but he's laying his life down for the elect without distinction. Meaning, doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter what gender you are, if you're God's elect, you're part of his sheep, he's laid his life down as a substitute for you. That's the point. Definite article, very important for a specific group. Okay, John 10, 14 through 15, I'm just reiterating this. Jesus goes on, he says, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me, even as the Father knows me. And I know the Father and I lay my, excuse me, I lay down my life. Again, for whom? For every human being without exception? No, it's for the sheep, definite article. Okay, now one passage I want you to turn to, if you will, turn to John 10, 16, because I want to start laying out an issue that we're going to come to. John 10, 16, I want you to see that in the New Testament, one of the issues that they had to wrestle with was salvation being something that would go to the Gentiles as well. In other words, it wasn't just for the Jews. That's revolutionary. You and I living 2,000 years after the first advent of Christ, we kind of yawn at this idea of the church being primarily Gentile. But this was revolutionary in the first century, especially to a Torah-believing Jew. So that's what's so shocking. So listen to what Jesus says here in John 10, 16. He says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. So let's stop there. I think I mentioned last week I had heard an emergent leader, an emergent pastor, try to claim that here Jesus teaching that there are going to be people of other religions one day saved. He was basically teaching universalism. That is not Jesus' point. Jesus' point in having sheep of another fold is a reference surely to the Gentiles. We see that clearly in the context of the book of John. In fact, so concerned are the Pharisees about Jesus being followed. They're saying the whole world is going after him. And just verses after that, in chapter 12, you see that Gentiles come to seek Jesus. Okay, so that's the issue. Jesus has sheep. Again, they're his elect, but they're of another fold, meaning they're of the Gentiles. They have to be brought to him as well. So the sheep then are the elect, containing what? Both Jew and Gentile. It's exactly what Bob was teaching us in Ephesians 2 with the one new man. The one new man is Jew and Gentile, the sheep of Christ's fold, but it comprises the elect. And that's who Christ laid his life down for. 
Okay. Um, anything anybody want to say? Bob, you got anything you want to add or, or subtract? If I was wrong on something? No, other than when we go back to the Romans 9 issue. Yeah, yeah. About um, when I studied this in seminary. Yeah. Beyond what they were asking me to, just because I was interested and it was debated in yeah. the circles I was part of. Right. One of the things that is a fatal flaw of the idea that God foresees human choices and then those cause him to elect yeah. is that that entails backwards causation, which is uh, people that believe in any kind of logic. Yeah. Consider that irrational. Right, right. Okay. Because then you have the uh, the effect, God's act of election, existing before the cause, man's choice. Great point. Okay. And that may seem a little odd or technical, but who brought it up was... Well, it came up in the context of this William Lane Craig's idea of middle knowledge. Middle knowledge, yeah. Middle knowledge. Anybody here that, if this seems too technical, don't worry about me. I I spent too much time in the library. But (laughs) um, middle knowledge is a popular view with some people, intellectuals. Yeah, philosophers, yeah. And it was Molina, a Catholic theologian, first proposed it. And then William Lane Craig resurrected it and wrote a book called The Only Wise God, which I read. Yeah. But it's, it's philosophy. It's not scripture. Middle knowledge says God is like the greatest God in eternity before creation. Be like the greatest supercomputer ever and could calculate in his omniscience all possible variables and all possible chains of cause and effect. And so God in eternity, according to middle knowledge, uh, calculated creating a universe in which there is free will. And what sort of universe with free will would result in the greatest number of the elect? Hmm. Okay. So you run every possible permutation this one, this one, this one, this one, this one, to an infinite degree of all the possible worlds that could, po- that could be created in which there's free will, and the one that comes up is the one we, we're in. And so the universe we live in, according to William Lane Craig and the Catholic theologian Molina before him, yeah. is the one in which God saw the most people would be saved. Wow. And but it's it's a philosophical. I had a professor who believed in this. Sure. But they have to admit it's a philosophical position, not a biblical one. Not an exegetical one, right? Yeah, it's not based on exegesis. It's based on philosophy. But it presumes that the great great good in God's mind is free will. So that's exactly. sort of like the constant. That's right, Bob. I love that, and you know this is why total depravity is so important. If we don't understand the depravity of man, that none would ever seek after him, that's what blows middle knowledge out of the water at the end of the day. Well, here's another one. Yeah. Um, we also believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. Amen. In Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine. Yes. 
And when I was reading, frankly, if I wanted to be a philosopher, I would probably like William Lane Craig. I saw him debate an atheist. He's utterly brilliant. Yeah. The atheists look pretty bad yeah. <laughs> when he's debating William That's Lane true, Craig. Yeah. Now, the point is this, though. When I read his book and I took notes on it, I was working through this and talking to professors, the fatal flaw is it didn't come from the Bible. That's right. It's just appealing to our intellectual ideas of how we think God could have run his universe in a way that we would like. That's right. But Deuteronomy 29, 29 says the secret things belong to God. The things revealed are for us and for our children and for children's children. And so that whole middle knowledge philosophy... It's not revealed. It's not revealed. Yeah. And so I have to reject it because it's not revealed. Amen. And what Eric is teaching us is revealed. Amen. That's what we want okay, to know. Okay, so... But William Lane Craig admitted that God electing people based on their choice yeah. was backwards causation, which is good. irrational. Well, that's good. He at least okay. made that. Yeah. The Arminians... We just don't even want to talk about that because they say, well, God lives in the eternal now, so before and after mean nothing to God. That's what the Arminians sure, say. Sure. So as he's just in the eternal now, there are these people choosing me. But before and after in this view that man's choice causes God's eternal decree of election is a logical relationship. Yeah. Not simply a chronological one. Right, right, amen. And so when we talk about cause and effect, yeah. the Bible very much has before and after. That's right. The whole Bible's before has before and after, before and after, before and after. Bob, great. Previously, point. I had I don't know when I did it, was it last week? No longer. Remember I I, sh- yeah. I don't I have so many Ephesians sermons in my brain, I can't remember which one I preach. Yeah. <laughs> but, but no longer, no longer, no longer makes before and after significant theologically. Exactly. So the Arminian has to believe in backwards causation. That what we would see as man's choice of God is the cause of God's choice of man, which was in eternity before creation. Because Amen. when it comes to creation or no creation, you have before and after. That's right. Bob, let's look again at this text then. Let's take that cause and effect idea. Thank you for bringing it up. It's a great way of thinking about it. Look at verse 16. If Paul said that it was the... Oops, I'm sorry, Norm, I'll be right there. Oh, maybe you've got something to add to this, so go ahead. No, it's getting back to the uh, Christ died for his sheep, only his sheep. Oh, yeah. And not for everybody. If it wasn't that way, it would make no sense logically because if he died for everybody and then when someone dies, they pay for their sins. Now their sins have been paid for twice. Exactly right. It doesn't add up. I agree with you. In fact, that's why atonement has to be limited. Otherwise, you're a universalist. Right. You're exactly right. It's just what is it that limits it? So don't let the Arminian get off the hook and say, well, they're not for limited atonement and all this evil Calvinist. Well, at some point, they're limiting the atonement, too, because they don't believe every human being has been atoned for. But at the end of the day, what they believe limits the atonement wasn't God's design, but human free will. And human free will can thwart the very decretive will of God. And I will prove to you in the Bible that that is not possible. Human beings cannot thwart God's decretive will. 
and we'll be proving that. But I want to get to, I'm sorry, Norm, great point, excellent. I wanted to show the, what Bob is saying with cause and effect. Cause and effect, it's not effect in the cause. So here, when Paul is talking about cause and effect, notice the cause of the election and the salvation is not on what man does. He could have said that here. He could have said that God chooses on the basis. He saw what Jacob was going to do and what Esau was going to do. But he says the opposite. God does what he wants. He has mercy on those whom he has mercy, compassion on his compassion, his inferences then is that it does not depend on man. So the man is not the cause. But who is? God. So if you want to talk about cause and effect, the cause is not man. It's God. That's the cause of election. That's why it's unconditional. So that's a great way of thinking about it, Bob. Let's think about it in cause and effect. What does Paul say? Paul is an authoritative spokesman, an apostolos. He speaks the very words of Christ. If we reject what he's saying, we're rejecting what Christ is saying. Christ himself is saying through the apostle Paul that the cause is not man, but God for election. Yes. Yeah, and remember in the context... You will say who resists his will. Exactly. So there is an objector, uh, a hypothetical objector that Paul addresses that is like an Armenian. Yeah. <laughs> and I had, when I was debating this in the 90s with so many different people, I said, well, this is addressed right here. What you're saying, Paul brings up, because that's what they were saying to me. Right. Well, we're robots, or nobody can, everybody can, our, our ideas are meaningless, and what we do is meaningless. Who can resist his will? It's just going to be like fatalism. And I said, well, that's a good question. Paul brought it up. Let's see his answer to it. Yeah, that's right. Well, they don't like his answer. They don't like it. But it's yeah. not that it isn't addressed. It's not like middle knowledge which really isn't addressed, right. or some of these other theories that really aren't addressed. This one is addressed, Amen. and there is a specific answer, and it's that God chose to have mercy on Jacob. Yes. Because that's what he does. Amen. And it's not that Jacob deserved mercy. Yeah. He yeah. didn't. That's exactly His flaws right. are described in the Bible. Yeah, much. and there was a lot of them. Okay, He's and a so grader. there wasn't the moral qualities of Jacob That's right. that made him a good candidate, and there was a lot of things Jacob had going against him. But God chose to have mercy on Jacob. Now, since we don't have the mind of God, I don't feel disturbed by this because I never preach to, or witness to someone or preach a go- the gospel to a group with the idea, I know ahead of time who the elect are. Exactly. I don't know that. Right. And so the know. universal call has to be preached by all, all the time, because only God knows that, so we yeah. don't know it. That's right. And yeah. so in the end, if the Armenian will be a real gospel preacher, which they used to be, but they've gotten away from because of the seeker movement, they'll, the elect will still respond, whether they're in their mind they think, Man chooses God first. Exactly. And the Calvinist preaches the universal call, and people are saved. Amen. And whether they, they in their minds, think God elected for the, for, for the foundation of the world, the same people are saved. Yeah. So what we have to decide, and this is what created the crisis for me, because I lost a lot of friends yeah. by believing what I do here. Yeah. 
But I it was either that or quit preaching verse by verse through the Bible. Yeah. I had no other choice. Amen. I either had to skip what I didn't like or go over to this view. Yeah. That were the only options. Yeah. And my conscience wouldn't let me skip. Amen. Okay, so when I realized if we're faithful in gospel preaching, God will save who he's going to save, oh. I'm comforted by that. Amen. But it, if the Calvinists say, well, the elect are going to be saved anyhow, so I'm not going to preach the gospel to anybody, yeah, that's then they're as guilty as the Armenians yep. who have the seeker movement and they have entertaining music and rock bands and whoever thinking uh, people will be happy. Yeah. But either way, we got to preach the gospel and the people who will come by God's grace will come. Amen. Preach Christ. Amen. Dana's got something. With regard to that question about who, who can resist the will of God, yeah. well, I just thought that that question presumes that somebody would want to, presume, want to oppose the will of God. But, but there's nobody out there who's just desperately wanting to be saved and God won't let them. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. Amen. <laughs> well said. Yes. Exactly right. And you know, Dana, you're so right in that Romans 9.19 that question presupposes an answer. It's a rhetorical question. A rhetorical question demands a specific answer. It's not open like, well, you know, some people do. It's not open to that answer. The only answer is no one can. That's the point because he makes one vessel for honor and one for dishonor in the text. And the whole question is, why is that fair? God is choosing to do something with one individual that he's not the other. And the question is in verse 19, who can resist his will? The will that's being referred to there is the decreative will. So remember, there's two different wills. Let's break it down real quickly. There's a moral will of God. God reveals his moral will in the scriptures. For example, it is God's moral will that every single person would believe the gospel. Jesus himself begins his ministry with commanding every person, repent and believe the gospel. That's Mark 1.15. So when he, re he commands that, every single human being is on the hook to fulfill God's moral will. Now, is that moral will thwarted? Oh, yes. In fact, according to Matthew 7, the vast majority of human beings will not repent because they're on the broad path that leads to destruction. Many enter in through it, Jesus says. That's Matthew 7. So yes, people will thwart God's moral will. But his decreative will is the will in which God necessarily, by his power, brings about that which he desires. And so when he decrees that someone will be saved from the foundation of the world, it will come about. And when he decrees, for example, that Christ would be crucified on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, it will come about. So that decreative will cannot be thwarted, and that's exactly the question that's being asked in Romans 9.19. It's not about God's moral will being thwarted. It's about God's decreative will. No one can thwart that. The Arminians are claiming it can be thwarted. That's the significance of understanding limited atonement. If you're an Arminian, you answer that rhetorical question, well, yes, it can be thwarted. What I'm saying is that's not an option, biblically. So let's keep moving on for the sake of time here. Let's look at an Arminian proof text that they often will use to try to show that atonement has indeed been made 
for every single human being without exception. What text do they typically point to? Well, they'll point to a text like 1 John 2.2. Now, this is tricky. Let's read it and see they may, may have a point here. John says, and he, that's Jesus himself, an adjectival intensive, so no, no one else, not a stunt double, it's Jesus himself, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for, our, not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Now, let's define each term, not each one, but the important ones here. Let's talk about propitiation. What's propitiation mean? Well, this comes from the noun halasmos. Halasmos is a reference to a word group that we have, hilsterion. And hilsterion in the Greek is a reference to the mercy seat that you will see, for example, in Leviticus 16. That's where, remember, the high priest would take the blood of the goat and he would pour it on the mercy seat. And when God would look down at the blood, his wrath would be what? Averted. It would be appeased. So propitiation is the appeasement of God's wrath. I like to say that's one half of the atonement. The other half, I like to think of it as expiation, the removal of the people's sins. They, you can't have one without the other. They go hand in hand. But propitiation is God-centered. The wrath of God is averted. So Jesus averted God's wrath for our sins. That's what he's saying. And not only for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So wait a minute. Doesn't the Arminian then have a point that this is, in fact, for every single person? Well, here, let me make a statement. And I'm going to prove that to you biblically. That what John is saying here is that Jesus' propitiation, his removal of God's wrath through his atonement, was for every single human being without distinction, but not every single human being without exception. If you believe in the latter, you are a universalist. Would it be an an-universalist? I got the double vowel thing. Anyway, I'd have to go back to my grammar on that, but... The, the point being, though, is if you're an Arminian and you believe that, you have to, if you take your logic to its logical consequence, you would be a universalist. Okay, why? Because Jesus would have averted God's wrath for every single human being. So the issue at hand, brothers and sisters, in John's writings, is that salvation is not just for the Jews... But it's also for the Gentile. That's what was so revolutionary. That's why Bob has been teaching us about the one new man in Ephesians. And again, we yawn about that because for 2,000 years, the church has been primarily Gentile. But that was revolutionary in the day. In fact, let me show you where else in John's writings, this is prevalent. The idea that Jesus dies not just for the Jews, the elect within the Jewish community, but also the elect within the Gentile community. Again, Every human being without distinction, whether you're Jew or Gentile, but not every, not every human being without exception. Listen to what he says in John 11, 51 through 52. Now here John is commenting on the words of the high priest. Remember the high priest said it would be expedient for one man, namely Jesus, to die rather than the whole nation to perish. And so here you have this pagan high priest who was speaking better than he knew. In fact, John says... Now he did not say this on his own initiative. So this is something that ultimately came from God. But being high priest that year, he prophesied 
that Jesus is going to die for the nation. So stop there. If God could use a donkey, he can certainly use a pagan high priest of Israel to speak something true, right? The old saying, even a stopped watch is right twice a day. So here the high priest was speaking something true, that Jesus is going to die for the nation. Notice in red, but in blue, in verse 52, it says, and not for the nation only. Now, who's the nation? Israel. But in order that he might also gather together into one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. It's the Gentiles too. That's exactly what John is saying in 1 John 2 too. He died not only for our sins, that of Israel, but the sins of the whole world, the Gentiles as well, Jew and Gentile. That's the point. Now, let me bring you back to a passage, a verse, that makes no sense if you hold to the Arminian position. Let's remind ourselves, go to Titus 2.11. Turn your Bibles there again. And this is one that you probably want to have in your back pocket if you're debating an Arminian. Titus 2.11. Listen to what Paul says here to his pastoral delegate on the island of Crete, Titus. Titus 2.11. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Now, if the Armenian, again, is correct, that all means every single human being without exception, then you're a universalist. Why? Because here he brought salvation to all men. It's clear. In fact, I'm sure many a universalist have used this passage to prove their point. But clearly, Paul is not a universalist. He's the one who says, while they're saying peace and safety, sudden destruction come upon them in the day of the Lord, 1 Thessalonians 5. So he's not a universalist by any means. So how do we understand that? Bringing salvation to all men means all men without distinction. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. That was the issue of the day. That's how we're to understand 1 John 2, 2, backed up by other points in John's writings like John 11, 51 through 52. And I saw someone had a microphone. Was that uh, you, Nancy? Yes. Thank you. Yes. Just something that I think about as we talk about pro- propitiation. Yes. It's just the fact that the Lord has actually offered a temporary propitiation for all those that get to live and enjoy the earth as sinners, whether they're saved or unsaved. Yeah. So you're thinking of common grace, but let's, let's, um, just be a little careful not to... I wouldn't use the term propitiation for that. Okay. Sometimes, by the way, propitiation is rendered mercy. Um, think about, remember uh, in Luke, Bob, where the guy says, be merciful to me, the sinner. He's actually using the term propitiation. Um, but, but here's why we don't want to take common grace. Common grace is that you're, you're right, that the, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Okay, that, that's true. You're exactly right. But we don't want to take propitiation because propitiation is a specific part of atonement in which God's wrath is appeased. Does that make sense? So that is only applied to the elect because only they have the wrath of God averted for them. Yes, Bob? Yeah, maybe we can make this category. Uh, Good question, by the way. Yeah, very good. Uh, Common grace means God's wrath is delayed. Mm, Good. Um, propitiation means God's wrath is appeased. Oh, I like that. Very good, yeah. 
You get coffee. Where do you, do you, get, you get a free phone? <laughs> Pretty rare. I get the good reading. Yeah. No, that's okay. a very good to say it again, Bob. Okay. Common grace says God's wrath. Yeah. God's wrath is delayed. Yes. Whereas propitiation means it's appeased. That's it. Does that make sense? Yeah. So the, the unelect, the unbelievers who remain in their sins their whole lives because they will never come to faith. Why? Because of their, their own depravity, their own moral inability. They will never have the propitiation of sins. The wrath of God is always against them. And that's why, um, remember, in, we see this in the book of Romans, that the wrath of God is being revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth, truth and unrighteousness. The wrath of God abides upon them. So right now, all the unregenerate don't realize, but the, the wrath of God is abiding upon them. And they will, unless they flee and come to faith in Christ, it will not be propitiated. So I like that. That's a great distinction, Bob. The, the believer has it appeased, it's removed, the wrath of God. But the unbeliever, it's only delayed, and that's common grace. So even the unregenerate will get to enjoy sunshine. And sometimes this rubs us the wrong way because we'll see some unregenerate, wicked, just disgusting sinner who hates God and the things of God, and they have a lot going for them in this world. They seem to have better health and more this and more of that. But all the while, they're storing up wrath for the day of wrath. And that phrase, ironically, that's used in Romans 5 has to do with them accruing wrath with interest. Because God was so gracious to them and yet they would not repent is further God heaping coals upon their head and enhancing their culpability. So that's the way we should think of it, I think, Nancy. Okay, I'm sorry, Bob. Well, um, excuse me. One of the things you can look at is all the Psalms, uh, the Mm. lament Psalms. Many times they lamented the fact that the wicked were prospering and doing great yeah. and the righteous were suffering. And there's psalms about it. Yeah. And they were tempted to take matters in their own hands. Yeah. But the psalms, like Psalm 37, uh, or Psalm 73 also, uh, the lament was, surely in vain have I kept myself pure. And then yeah, look, at, look, at, look at the wicked enjoying everything, yeah. and every, they're happy and, and so on. But what is the answer that's given in the Psalms was, but then I beheld their end. Oh, we got something going on. So, uh, and the, that's why we emphasize believing the promises of God. Because if we just look at how people are doing, whether they get sick, whether they're rich or poor, whether they're happy all the time, whether everything's going well, you can look around and see people that hate God who are better off than you might be at any given time. Yeah. And that's been common. That's why those psalms exist. Yeah, amen. And uh, the answer is always the same thing. Look at the end. Yeah. So Paul says, if we've hoped in Christ in this life only, we have all been most miserable. Yes. Okay. So if you take eternity out of it and you take the promises of God out of it, 
I grant to you that life doesn't look fair. Yeah. But you can't take those things out and still have the gospel. Amen. So we're going to keep saying, believe the promises of God because we have not yet seen the outcome. Amen. Well said. Well said. I'm going to keep going just through some uh, passages on limited atonement just to prove the point that this isn't just a doctrine that we see in John chapter 10. Notice here Paul again, Titus 2.14, it says, who gave himself, talking of Jesus giving himself as the atonement, for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Now, notice the logic here. Notice in red, what did Jesus do? Gave himself. What, who, to whom did he give himself for? A people for his own possession. It wasn't every human being without, without exception, but it was for all without distinction, Jew and Gentile, all of the elect. Doesn't matter what race you are. Doesn't matter what class you are, what gender you are. What matters is that God has bestowed mercy and grace upon you. And that's who he gave himself for. Hebrews 10, 14, Jesus said by, uh, talking about Jesus, says, for by one offering, he, that's Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Okay, now, let's just stop here for a moment. Again, red, what's the, what's the logic? What did Jesus do? It was by one offering. What did he do? He perfected for all time. Notice in blue, all people know those who are sanctified. Now, notice the term sanctified. What does that mean? It means to be set apart. And this is one of the verses that shows the sanctification isn't... Let me just put a pause on everything. Typically, we as evangelicals think, I was justified, I believed. Now in my walk, I'm being sanctified. I'm in the process of sanctification. One day I'm going to be glorified. But here's a passage that clearly shows us sanctification is something that happens when you're set apart for salvation. And when you look at the majority of the cases in the Bible, the term sanctified is what has happened once and for all, that you were set apart to be in Jesus Christ. So that phrase, those who are sanctified, means those who are set apart for God. Well, who is that? It's the elect. The elect, whether Jew or Gentile. So again, Jesus' one offering wasn't for every single human being without exception but it was for the elect who were set apart for God. That's what Hebrews 10, 14 is clearly saying. Now, let me talk about what Arminianism really is. Arminianism is really an attack on the omnipotence of God. In Ar Arminianism, God tries but fails to save many people. After all, he made potential atonement for them, but God's plan is thwarted by human free will. That's the Armenian position. Calvinism says, no, God does succeed and cannot fail in saving his elect. When God sets forth his son to be a propitiation for the sins of the elect, he does not fail at it. And to me, that's the one issue that I have beyond any other issue with the limited atonement doctrine and the rejection of it by the Armenians is the, the Armenians are attacking the omnipotence of God. As if, as Dana cited the Romans 9.19 passage, as if God's will can be thwarted. It's not true. Now, I'm going to start building that case, show you, no, 
When God sets out to do something, he doesn't fail. He succeeds in everything that he sets out to do. Jeremiah 32, 17. Listen to the prophet Jeremiah exclaiming. He says, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. The God who created all things, if he sets out to save his elect, he will save his elect. He will not be thwarted. Let me show you a passage I love. Here in Joshua, the context here is, remember, you had an apportioning of the land from chapters 30 all the way through 21. Well, then, at the very end here of Joshua 21, you have this remembrance by the people that, in fact, none of God's promises have failed. Joshua 21.45, it says, Not one of the good promises which Yahweh had made to the house of Israel failed, all came to pass. So notice, God's plan wasn't ever thwarted by human inability. That's the Armenian position. The Armenian position is that, yes, God had a plan. He had his son die for every person, but he couldn't save all of them. Why? Well, because his plan was thwarted by human free will. Well, Joshua says not one of God's promises ever failed. Here, I'm going to put up here 1 Kings 8. Here is Solomon. In verse 56, he's giving a benediction. Remember, this is where you have in uh, 1 Kings chapter 8, the dedication of the temple. The ark is brought into the temple. There's a magnificent prayer as Solomon addresses the people. And at the end, he gives this benediction. And listen to what he says about the promises of God. Blessed be Yahweh who has given rest to his people according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he promised through Moses, his servant. Brothers and sisters, that's incompatible with Arminianism. Arminianism would say that some of God's promises are thwarted by human free will. But over and over, we see that God's promises cannot be thwarted. Let's look at Isaiah 59. Actually, before I put this up, I want you to turn your Bibles to Isaiah 55, 10 through 11. Isaiah 55, verses 10 through 11. Now, as we're turning to Isaiah 55, 10 through 11, remember, and I'll just speak to you as you're turning there, we've often cited Romans 10, 17 as the means of salvation for people, the elect. That faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The word of Christ. It's the gospel, the word of God that regenerates. God uses it. He regenerates them by the spirit, enabling them to believe the gospel, which saves them. So God's word is what saves. So notice what he says in Isaiah 55, 10 through 11. He makes an analogy from the created order to the salvific order. He says, for as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bear and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So notice he says, look, the, the rain comes and it doesn't fail in its purpose. So he says in verse 11, will my word be which goes forth from my mouth? Meaning it won't fail either. He says, it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. When God sets out to save, he 
does not fail. The Armenians have to believe that when God set forth his son and the propitiation and the atonement for all, God's plan was thwarted and it was done by human beings. Here we see a text that's very clear. When God's word goes forth. Now, let's think about that for a moment. Let's think about God's word goes out to the whole world now. The gospel. And if we take Isaiah 55 seriously, what God is saying to us is that the elect will hear that word. God will regenerate them, enabling them to believe. And every one of God's elect will be brought to saving faith. Yes, they will willingly believe, but it's because God did a heart transplant in them. But as that word goes out on the unregenerate, left to their own moral inability, they will not like the word. In fact, many of them become just more angry and more seething. And God's word then will also have its desired effect in hardening and making them even more culpable. In fact, we see this in Isaiah 6, Isaiah's commission, keep preaching so that they'll keep hearing, but they won't listen. That they'll keep observing, but they won't see. There's a hardening in the preaching. When Jesus in Matthew 13, 11 tells the disciples, to you it's been given the knowledge of the kingdom of God, but to them it's not been given, that's why he preached to them in parables. Why? Because it was a form of hardening. They wouldn't receive it. So he told his disciples plainly, but to the unregenerate, he just told them everything in parables. And what's so interesting is the teaching in parables wasn't just a form of hardening. It was also a form of mercy. So think about it this way. Jesus speaking in parables, let's say he just comes out and tells the Jews, I'm the Messiah, and either you repent and believe in me, or you're all going to perish. If he tells them directly, they're so angry, so morally against him, that they would react in violent ways. In fact, we saw that in Jesus' own synagogue. He tells them, Isaiah 61 is fulfilled in me. In me. And what do they do? They try to throw him off the cliff. So, so much for telling them plainly. Well, if you just tell them more directly, Jesus, certainly they're going to believe. No, the more direct he is, the more they want to kill him. So he starts telling them in parables. Why? Because, as Jack Nicholson famously said, they can't handle the truth. And so as we preach the word, brothers and sisters, it has a dual effect of saving God's elect, but also hardening those who are perishing. God's word does not return empty. It will not fail. Yes, Norm. And we'll stop with Norm's question and or comment, and then we'll, uh, we're going to have Donna come up. The response that usually you get back at this point from an Armenian is, well, what do we do with all the passages that say, whosoever will? Amen. And, and they, they, they can't get over that. The hat. So you've got to answer that question. Yes, absolutely. Yes, so that's the universal call. So as a biblical preacher, as someone understands the word, we have to affirm both, that there's a universal call, that yes, when I proclaim the gospel, the gospel is for every person. In other words, anyone who come to Jesus says, 
John 6, 37, I will by no wise cast them out. If you come unto him, he's not going to cast you out. The problem is, because of the depravity of man, will any ever come to him? And that's why I said total depravity. If we don't get that right, we're going to be off on every other doctrine in justification and, and uh, soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. So the whosoever goes out and the unregenerate who are morally opposed to the gospel hear it and they don't like it. But for the elect that are regenerated, God enables them for the first time to believe that's the effectual call. So the universal call goes to all. The effectual call makes the elect believe. Okay. So you also hear the claim, well, I'm a four-point Calvinist. Yes. And that doesn't make sense because if you, if you believe in the, don't believe in the, or you do believe in the depravity of man and that you can't, you can't take one out. They come as a whole set. You gotta that's take right. Thing. And typically it's limited atonement yeah. is the one that's selected out. Absolutely. Because of t- texts like 1 John 2, 2. And I know some good theologians that I sat under when I was um, getting my four-year degree at Northwestern years ago. And they would say that they were a four-point Calvinist. And what I think is they just misread passages like 1 John 2, 2. They made the category error of thinking that the whole world meant every human being without exception. Not every human being without distinction, meaning Jew and Gentile. That was the issue. So that's why a lot of really good scholars, Bible believers, who would affirm all the other points have a problem with limited atonement. I think they think they're holding on to some exegetical um, evidence that I think is just a misreading of the passage. So very good point, um, Norm. Thank you for bringing those things up. Well, let's just bow our heads in prayer and thank the Lord. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it's clear that you have not made it um, murky, that you've made it very clear how you save and what you desire from us. I do pray, Lord, that you'd settle these truths in our hearts so that we may live according to your will, your moral revealed will in Jesus' name.